Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We have a very special announcement for you today. We have a brand new sponsor, and I want to tell you why I've finally decided to get behind a cannabis slash CBD slash hemp company. So obviously for the last five years or so, the entire world has been jumping on the bandwagon of cannabis and hemp. And I didn't uh, exploit the opportunity, we'll say, and jump into the cannabis industry. One, to be honest, I've never been a user of cannabis. Uh, I've never really known enough about it. I never really enjoyed the consumption of it and never saw benefit. And to be honest, I did a lot of research. I was actually the chief science officer of a, of a cannabis company for quite a long time, even though I didn't use it. And I was a chief science officer because I wanted to learn about it. And what I did learn was it's effectively, still is effectively Wild West, there's very little regulation, much less than you think, particularly in the way that these things are processed. You can have full spectrum cannabinoids uh, derived from cannabis, which have trace amounts of THC. You can have uh, CBD, CBN, and all these cannabinoids derived from hemp, which is a very different thing. And then how they're extracted is also another area of variance in each of these companies. And it was very interesting for me to explore and research and learn and get to interact with literally uh, tens of companies now, maybe 20 or 30 different companies and learn their processes and learn their extraction processes and learn their sourcing. Where are they actually getting these cannabis products? Where are they actually getting these hemp plants from? Were they well-grown? Were they organically grown? Or were they loaded with pesticides like most of the crops around America these days? And finally, after a number of years, I found a company that I believe is putting out some of the highest quality products in the entire CBD space. The company that is now sponsoring the podcast is called NED. You guys may have heard of NED before, N-E-D. I've actually heard of NED probably for the last three or four years. I've tried their products way back in Gosh, probably 2018 now. And I did enjoy them, but I was still in the process of doing a significant amount of research. I didn't want to just dive right in and say, yeah, I love this product. And even though I love the branding and I love the mission behind the company, I, I love why the company was started, which I'll tell you about in due time. But what I most recently have discovered is their best practices behind sourcing and processing uh, their or 100% organic hemp is uh, nothing short of industry standard. So without more rambling for me, I wanted to just give you a little bit of an introduction into why Ned is now a official sponsor of the Muslim Intelligence Podcast, because I do believe in their products. And uh, I've gone through my due diligence of reading as much as I can, not just about Ned, but as I say, 20 or 30 companies in the industry, actually probably more, which it realizes there's actually not that many producers in the country. There's a lot, obviously, but it's not that many that are the main production sources for most of the, whether hemp-derived or um, cannabis-derived CBD, CBN, and full-spectrum cannabinoids. So without further ado for me, I introduce Ned. You guys can check out Ned if you go over to Hello Ned. H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off. They've got an entire suite of highly vetted products, high quality products. And as I say, the, the very least I can tell you 
is that these are the highest quality products I've been able to find. So if you're someone who does enjoy CBD products derived from hemp, which means they're in the absence of THC, so no psychoactive effects whatsoever, just the benefits of ultimately decreasing inflammation, potentially improving sleep for some people. If you're someone who does love CBD and you love the benefits of CBD, this is a company that I highly suggest you check out. Head over to helloned.com. Use the code muscle at checkout to get hooked up with 15% off. Today's podcast is an amazing interview with Mark Sisson. Mark, if you don't know him, might be the fittest man on the planet as far as his age category. If you want to be anyone, it's probably Mark Sisson. He's 68 years old and shredded, certainly single digit body fat, has an amazing balanced perspective. He's not obsessed. He's not neurotic. He's just very objective. He's very um, focused. He's very directed. I absolutely love Mark's energy. He's been teaching in this space for 35 years. Mark is the original um, creator of the Primal Blueprint brand, the Primal Kitchen brand. Mark is a a world-renowned expert in the area of health and fitness and longevity. And he joins me today to give me his insights into ultimately how he looks like he's 25 and 68 years old, still performing in every aspect of life at the highest level. He said he's playing this week. Uh, ultimate with people in their 20s and ultimately crushing them at 68 years old. There's a lot to be learned here. And I really love my conversation with Mark Sisson. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, Ned, hello, ned.com slash muscle. After you listen to this incredible podcast with Mark Sisson, enjoy the show. Mr. Mark Sisson, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Man, I've been a fan for a long time. We did get a chance to meet at uh, Paleo FX a few years back. Wouldn't expect you to meet. I expect uh, expect you to remember, but I've uh, been a big fan of your work for a long time. And uh, like I said, you, you're like Benjamin Button. You're aging <laughs> in the verse. So I'm going to dig into that today, truthfully, because I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of sure. things right. Uh, and yeah. I think a lot of people in this world have certain concepts of longevity. And I think you're one of the people who's actually putting uh, it to the test. So uh, right. one, thank you for being here. Thank you for what you do. Sure. And I look forward to digging in your brain. Let's do it. Yeah. So um, you're 69 right now? Or yes, I'll be, well, 68, I'll be 69 in July, who's counting, right? So, Yeah, and you're still walking around with a full eight-pack and uh, still playing Ultimate Frisbee and, and still, you're not still running, which is good, um, but you're still training consistently. And, and I think all of our audience would be um, incredibly uh, grateful to start digging into how this all began for you. I know you were an endurance uh, athlete, a, a marathoner and triathlete yeah. for a long time. Um, and y- so, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I really um, was kind of a geeky kid, uh, nerdy, geeky, you know, bookish, uh, interested in in uh, reading about longevity for some bizarre reason. I think my mother was into longevity in, early, uh, in the early 60s, right? So I started digging into Adele Davis, who was the premier author of, of the health movement in those days. Um, I lived two miles from school, so I jogged to and from school just to beat the bus, right? I, I could I could get home before the bus could get home. So I, I wound up jogging um, at 11, 12, 13 years old. And uh, lo and behold, became a runner. Uh, I was too small to be on the football, the basketball, the baseball team, the hockey team, because I grew up in Maine, uh, and wound up going out for track and, and, and then finding that I was actually pretty fit from all of the training that I've been doing unknowingly. Uh, and typically would win the mile and the two mile and 
oddly enough, sometimes the pole vault um, in the track meets. So that became track and field became my my thing. Uh, and then sort of because I was doing all this reading about uh, about health, I read Ken Cooper's book on aerobics, which suggested that the more running you did, the better it was for your heart and the longer you would live. So that made sense to me. So I ran even more and uh, then went to college and, and it was tracking cross, cross country and then started doing road races in the summer. Those morphed into 10Ks and marathons. And by the end of my collegiate career, I was uh, fit enough to start thinking about training for uh, the Olympic trials and the marathon. So I spent a couple of years doing 100 miles a week of training, pretty intense training, finished fifth in the U.S. National Marathon Championship in 1980, qualified for the Olympic trials. Um, but uh, all of the work that I've been doing kind of, uh, more than kind of, it was, it was antithetical to health. So here I started on this track to be living longer and being healthier and more, more productive and more fit. And I was sick all the time. And I had arthritis in my hips and, and tendonitis and irritable bowel syndrome and upper respiratory tract infections a few times a year. It was just I was a wreck. So it was like the exact opposite of what I've been looking for. So um, I, I had to quit running because of the itises, because of the tendonitis and the arthritis. Uh, but I was, I was still good enough runner that I could run so I could ride a bike and I could swim. So I started doing triathlons for a while. So I did Ironman. Actually, Ironman Hawaii was my first triathlon ever. And uh, spent a couple of years doing triathlons, finished fourth at Ironman in 82. And then that was sort of the end of it. I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm overtraining. I'm not healthy. Uh, my injuries didn't get any better, certainly from training for triathlons. In fact, they were getting worse. So I retired from competition and really just sat back and said, look, I'm going to dedicate myself to being the, the healthy, fit, lean individual that I always wanted to be and see if I could do it with, without all of this pain and suffering and sacrifice and discipline and all of the, all of the crap that goes along with it. Uh, and that began, you know, a 35, 40 year journey looking into how the body responds to certain inputs like food, like sleep, like different types of exercise, what genes get turned on or off by these, by these uh, inputs and how maybe we can control them, not just as athletes, but just as, as regular individuals going about life, wanting to optimize health and maximize the experience of life. And so that's kind of how we get to where I am today. I've, uh, I've achieved over the past 40 years uh, a level of health that is far greater than I than when I was in my 20s and I was at the peak of my performance career, right? So I'm, my energy levels are great. I feel great. Um, I try to spend as much time as I can playing as opposed to managing pain or discomfort, which is what I did as an endurance athlete, and, and trying to enjoy the the process of living, whether it's enjoying eating, enjoying working out, enjoying playing, um, enjoying being with with family or friends, and trying to put a you know a lifestyle together that became uh, the tagline for our company, which is basically live awesome. You've been in this longevity game for what sounds like fifty years, and I'm curious how the definition. So you've seen the transitions, and I'm curious how the definition or maybe the focus has changed from say the late '60s when you started. Uh, you know, on this journey for longevity, maybe through the 70s and 80s and, and what the what the really focus was way back then? Well, you know, the focus in those days was don't die before you're 70. 
I mean, it's literally was a weird concept uh, as as the uh, average lifespan of Americans has increased over the years. Um, in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't it wasn't much beyond uh, 70 years. I mean, literally, Social Security was whole, the whole the whole reason that Social Security worked, where some workers would contribute to a pot to pay off the retired workers, was the assumption that you retire at the age of 65 and then die at the age of 67. <laughs> so they don't really have to pay you for three or four years. So so the, the the original concept of longevity wasn't like, oh, how do I live to 100? It was really how do I extend my life into my 80s and and do so with, uh, you know, with a good quality of life. Now, I've always defined uh, quality of life as really two major categories. One is mobility. Like, how can I move through this world? Can I travel? Can I walk every day? Can I? Can I do things? Can I interact with with uh, people and, and and go places and not be uh, confined to a wheelchair or a bed or my house or my sofa? So the mobility part of that is a pretty uh, significant aspect of enjoying a quality of life. And then, of course, access to memory. So how can I avoid uh, dementia or Alzheimer's through uh, whatever the dietary interventions that I might engage in, but also using my brain in ways that would you know, keep it uh, worked out the same way I would work out a muscle in the gym. Those two um, are the main sort of focus of my longevity program. I'm very fascinated by the biohacking movement right now. And this, this concept that people say, well, I want to live to be 160 and I want to live to be 170. And I'm like, dude, I just, if I hit 90 and I'm still you know, functioning on all cylinders, I will be very happy with that. I mean, you know, I'd like a hundred, maybe sure. Who knows? But I'm not looking for these super long extended lifespan things because I feel like humans, uh, we do have a fuse and it does, you know, the candle does burn out at some point and that's the circle of life. So as long as we can optimize the time that we have here, and you know, enjoy every possible moment, savor every moment, extract the greatest amount of pleasure out of every every moment that we can. That's what I'm after. That's that's my that's kind of my focus in all of this. Not like oh, if I do everything right today, if I withhold calories today, if I don't do this today, if I don't have this dessert today, then maybe I'll add three months to my life on the back end. I don't think in those terms. I think about today. Well, it sounds like you're living without regrets. And I think that the challenge with those people who want to live to 160, many of them, at least the ones that I've uh, engaged with, do have some uh, regrets of their past, but they think they're they're not living life to the fullest. And as you say, they aren't maybe expressing the the joy, the love, the play that they should be every day to, to really enjoy the day to the fullest. Um, talk to me a little bit about your daily routine. So, uh, I've, I've seen many of the YouTube videos. I know what it is, but I, I think the audience would be really, really enlightened to start to hear like what a gentleman of your caliber is doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I'm uh, recently uh, retired, although I don't like that word. I, tr- I actually tried to be retired for two years. It didn't work. So I'm, I started another company. Well, we can talk about that, but I have to be, I have to be doing something. I have to be, you know, mentally involved in some productive tasks, some reason to get up every day, not just to go hit the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I get I get up around, I don't know, seven, between seven and 7.30. I try to get eight and a half hours of sleep uh, every night. 
um, you know, have a cup of coffee. Uh, I read two actual newspapers, not little stuff like this, but actual big, big ass. They still make those things or are they from the 80s? No, they're from the 80s and they still make them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I do. And then I do cross the crosswords and I do a lot of the the puzzles in the in the papers, although I'm I'm very fast at those. So I, it's uh, most days it's, you know, so you're not minutes. intentionally to keep your brain sharp because you enjoy yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I really do enjoy it and it's become a pattern of mine. Uh, and just the side effect is I'm sure that I'm keeping my brain sharp doing that. So it wasn't intentional to do the, you know, like, again, it's not like I'm sacrificing fun working on this goddamn puzzle. So I will, my brain will be better in, in 20 years. It's literally, I, I enjoy it. It's part of my routine. Um, you know, then I do a little bit of work, uh, you know, answer emails, uh, write something because I'm always writing, you know, either a column or an idea for something. Uh, and then I break around uh, 10 or 1030 and do my workout. Uh, I'm normally I'm always fasted for the workout. I'm a big fan of, of doing every workout uh, fasted in that regard. Um, today, I did a, a leg day just because I didn't have anything else. To, uh, it sort of I. I I have a very fractal workout schedule. So I try not to really work out as much as I try to find things to do. But the reason I was in the gym today was because yesterday the weather was right. And I went for a hour and a half fat bike ride on the sand. So that's one of my favorite workouts here. So you ride a really a four and a half inch wide tire bike on the sand, on the, on the soft sand and the hard pack sand. It's an incredible workout. It's very safe. I mean, you, you know, you can't, get hurt doing it. Um, and it's, you know, it's out in the fresh air, you're breathing the, you know, the, the, the ionized ozonated water coming off the, off the, off the uh, ocean. It's fantastic. So I did that yesterday, the day before, um, it just happened to be, uh, low tide and low tide in front of my house here, the, the, it's perfect for sprinting. So I'm like, okay, I had some other plans today, but I, I, I got to take advantage of the sprinting day. So I went down and joined a couple of my lifeguard buddies for a sprint session on the sand. The day before that, I lifted weights. The day before that, I did an hour, half and a half uh, paddle. So I try to mix it up every day. And that's, I think, one of my, uh, one of the things I realized very recently about my program and how my body type has been shaped over the last 20 years is this combination of of a cross training type workout that really works well for my body type. I was a marathoner. I was a, you know, I'm a basically an ectomorph, although kind of ecto meso. Um, my normal weight when I raced was 142 uh, as a marathoner, and I was a big marathoner at 510. Uh, and then it was, I, I raced triathlons at 152 to 155. I weigh 172 now, and I have probably the same body fat. But because I don't do any sort of running that chews up muscle tissue, um, because I mix and match like a day of stand up paddling and then another day of lifting and then a, and then a day of sprinting and then a day of uh, focused uh, leg work on the bike and then a leg day in the gym, I'm kind of all over the place. And then I might play ultimate Frisbee where I'm doing, uh, you know, what amounts to two hours of shuttle runs. Uh, with 20 somethings, all of it kind of uh, combines to to keep uh, my body a little bit like ready for anything. Uh, 
you know, any type of activity. I can swim. I can, I can do a lot of stuff. Whereas if I was just in the gym every day, just lifting weights and stretching afterwards, that would not be enough for me. That would, that would sort of push me into a different category of fitness. If I were just running, I could probably be one of the top age group runners in the country based on my history. It's not interesting to me and I don't want to lose my muscle mass for that. Um, I enjoy paddling. I enjoy riding. So, um, you know, I want to be the, it's, it's like my little mini decathlon, if you will, of all these different events that I can put together, none of which is done enough to uh, cause like overuse injuries because it, it's always mixing it up. Does that, does that make sense? Makes absolute sense. And there's a lot of brilliance in that that should be just kind of noted for, for the audience listening is the, the diversity is great, not only for your body and allowing each part of your body to recover, but also for your brain to, to allow different areas of your brain to be stimulated in different ways. And I think people who are younger, aspiring to be at your level at 68 years old should realize that the requirement or the necessity behind skill acquisition, right? Intentionally trying to diversify your skills because, like, you're you're playing all these different things. And if, if the average person tried to paddle for an hour and a half, they couldn't do it. If they tried to sprint for an hour and a, or however long, they probably couldn't do it. And you've just maybe been intentional or not over the last thirty years developing these skills, and that gives you more diversity. Because what I find is a lot of people get really good at what they're good at and don't ever try anything else, and that becomes very limiting. Because if you hurt one thing, get a little injury, all of a sudden you can't. You're kind of in trouble. No, I'm, I've got friends who are very fit at what they do um, and who will come out and ride with me and sorry, they can't hang, yeah, you know, and these are people that are 15, 20 years younger than me. Um, I've got, and when I paddle, I, I, I paddle alone because nobody can hang with me. And I don't want to, I don't sound like a, a dick. Call me on, Mark. I, I, I'm Call out me there. On, I'm out there. I'm out there for my workout. I'm not out there to be, you know, looking at dolphins. I mean, I am looking at dolphins and manatees, but on my way to doing my workout. So, yeah. Um, that's awesome. So looking back on, let's say the last 30 years of your longevity journey, if you had done anything differently, what would it be? Uh, the last 30 years. Or, um, you pick a time frame. Well, but I mean, you know, cause I could go back, I could go back 40 years and I could say, well, if I knew then what I know now about training, about diet, about nutrition, um, I, I and I was an elite marathoner. If I'd known, I would have done things differently. Um, like, or triathlon. If I had taught myself how to swim, uh, I would have been one of the best triathletes in the world. Um, but I wasn't willing to spend the time to do that. So I can go back and say, well, if I'd spent the time, I would have been one of the best in the world, but I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I've learned. So, so one of the things that I've, that I've learned over the years is there is, there is only feedback. There's no failure. And going back and saying I would do something different doesn't necessarily mean that it would have left you in a better place. Um, I am who I am today because of the mistakes I made more than because of the successes that I had. Uh, and over time, as you get, as you do get older, you are allowed to, to become successful by having accumulated at some point, you can't just have, you just can't be an accumulation of, of, of failures your whole life, right? You got at some point pull it, pull it together and be successful. But as you get older, some of the lessons that you learned now really come home to roost and you and you're able to to incorporate them and then move forward. But all of those things that I that I I keep every once in a while I would say, geez, if I'd only done this, I could have I could have run, you know, three minutes faster in the marathon, or I could have, I could have, you know, won Ironman. Okay, but you know, I'm pretty happy with where I am today. 
right? And how about with respect to longevity practices, day-to-day practices? Is there any kind of glaring things you did along the way? You're like, God, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, outside of the extreme amounts of endurance racing, I'm sure you'd be like, yeah, that might not have contributed yeah, yeah. to um, longevity. No, I mean, but still it's, a great I, benefit. Yeah, no, I, I feel like the body is so resilient that that the path that I've taken over the past 20 years has corrected uh, many of the things that would have literally killed me if I kept doing them. I mean, I was, I wasn't, I, I had irritable bowel syndrome horribly until from the age of 14 to 47. It wasn't until I was 47 that I really understood what I was doing that was causing this IBS that ran my life, that literally ran and ruined my life. Um, and once I figured it out and I started on this path to uh, healing and recovery, um, everything was like, oh my God, this is like, how did I, <laughs> how did I go as long as I did suffering that much? And, and, and even on a daily basis, one of my little gratitude exercises, almost on a daily basis, is remembering back to how bad things were and, and appreciating what I've done for myself in, in making those shifts and healing. So I had osteoarthritis in my 20s, which had I kept on that path, I would probably have, uh, you know, uh, joint replacements now, maybe, a, maybe an ankle replacement, maybe a knee replacement, maybe a hip replacement, but I corrected and I got to the point where I didn't, not only did I not need those, some of those joints are the, are the strongest parts of my body. Now they're certainly stronger than they were in those days. Uh, so there's a, the resiliency of the body is incredible. And probably my strongest message that I have for anybody who is watching this, who's read my books is it's never too late to start to incorporate some of these these changes, whether it's a dietary change, whether it's getting the right amount of sleep, whether it's um, you know mobility exercises, uh, whatever it is, it's it's really never too late to to reverse what would otherwise be a slippery slope downhill toward decrepit, old, infirm, immobile, uh, which is you know unfortunately what a large part of the population is facing right now. Yeah. So. What are some of the high impact habits that you implemented at that 47th year to really make a shift in the, um, ultimately the stress? Well, so, yeah. Like? So I'd already, I'd already done, uh, years of writing about health and, and diet. And I'd already, I'd already recognized how bad sugar was. So I kind of cut sugar out. I'd already recognized about, uh, the, the inflammatory nature of industrial seed oils. I, I'd cut some of those out. Um, I had, uh, but I had uh, what I hadn't addressed was my um, particular uh, susceptibility to issues from grain. So when I cut grain out of my diet, uh, gluten in particular, wheat, um, it was transformative. It really, it really was like such a light switching on for me that it prompted me to start to think, "Wow, if I've been assuming that grains are good and that I've been." As, a, as an endurance athlete, I've been chowing down on a thousand grams of carbs a day for 30 years, thinking I got a carb load, you know, between every, every day for the next workout the next day, and that grains are the cheapest, best, most effective source of carbs. Therefore, grains have to be good for me. Um, if, if I had, I, the fact that, that I was unwilling to look at what grains might be doing to me um, suggested to me that there might be tens of millions of people like me who just assume, yeah, grains, it's, a, it's the base of the food pyramid. 
It's like the government has been promoting it for all these years. Why would you think? The government always has your best interest at heart. Of course. <laughs> so, so just that one little shift caused about an 85 to 90% reversal. And then the next shift came from incorporating, um, in, in my case, uh, collagen supplementation. I started doing collagen peptides. And I started doing it for my Achilles. But I noticed that my gut uh, was was healing even more, like like that last ten percent yeah. uh, of my gut that needed to heal was was responding uh, well to collagen. That put me on a on a whole investigation toward um, looking at collagen as maybe the fourth macronutrient. You know, we have fats, proteins, carbohydrate, and of the proteins, most people think of protein as muscle building, mm-hmm. but the largest source of protein in the human body is collagen. It's it's skin, hair, and nails. It's part of bones. It's uh, connective tissue. So it's fascia. It's ligaments. It's tendons. It's it's cartilage. It's all of this stuff that isn't muscle um, that needs um, collagen peptides to rebuild, the raw material to rebuild this. And if we don't consume it in our diet, we tend to uh, lose the the stiffness and we let, tend to, that we, they become uh, these these. Um, this, this soft tissue starts to um, diminish in, in efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, and I noted that, that in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, um, we, we were still doing stews and broths, bone broths. And, you know, the grandmother would make a, you know, a, a pressure cooker stew or something like that. Um, we, as kids, we would eat jello and jello was a source of, of, uh, of uh, collagen peptides, of gelatin. Um, even my mother uh, and, and most women in those days ate Knox gelatin. They literally had these packets of Knox gelatin that they would stir up and it would be for, for their nails, to help their nails. Well, as we get to the 80s and 90s, the, the, um, the health Nazis start coming on and saying, you know, jello is bad for you and you can't have jello. So, so jello suffered a huge hit in terms of sales. Um, so kids were no longer eating Jello. Um, everybody was eating the choice cuts of the meat, you know, the the New York steak or the prime or the whatever, but they weren't eating the the nose to tail parts of the animal. Um, bone broths was was ceased to be a thing, so nobody was even eating bone broth. So we had like a twenty year period there where nobody was really getting any collagen in their diets. And you and I started to think about all the the athletic injuries that I that I would see, the ACL tears and the and the, the you know the, the the torn rotator cuffs and the uh, and the twisted ankles that shouldn't have ever been uh, that susceptible to a twist on the football field or on the basketball court. I started to think you know like here's here's a nutrient that's been missing from the American diet for 20 years and it's causing problems. It's literally causing problems. So that was sort of an interesting little. Uh, uh, you know, uh, aha moment that I had that started with my own issues. And then I started to look at, well, what's going on with the rest of rest of the world. And and then I became fascinated with the idea of, of collagen as a supplement. Talk to me, Mark, about the um, challenges or the issues with gluten and grains. So gluten seems to have its own set of challenges, but grains in general, there's always arguments, right? There's people saying yeah. you need grains and legumes for your microbiome. Those are really important for to establish a diverse microbiome. And then I get your argument that says, hey, you know what? These things aren't doing us any good. We're, we're, you know, If you had to argue both sides of that, how would you approach that? 
Okay, so both sides. On the one side, I would say um, some people do do okay with grains. Um, wheat in Europe, for instance, is far different from wheat in the United States. It's it's wheat in the United States is grown specifically for its gluten content, for its pro, gluten is protein. It's the plant storage form protein. Um, typically, it's it's so tightly wound in these uh, in these grains in these seeds that the human body has not had enough time in terms of evolution to adapt to the easily uh, digesting of, of these uh, glutinous proteins. So with some people, it's horrible. If you have um, celiac, you can die from eating grains. Um, other people, um, like myself, I can, eat, um, I can eat corn as a grain, ground up corn. Um, I can have, uh, you know, a, a, there's a few other types of grains that I can have. Wheat is an issue for me, but I can have a couple of bites of bread and it's not, you know, I've, I've repaired my gut enough that I can reintroduce, as long as there's a lot of butter on the bread, I can have a couple of bites of bread. Um, other people, zero issue, grains are their, you know, the basis of their diet. They have cereal for breakfast. They have a sandwich for lunch. They have uh, pasta for dinner. Um, now, another argument there would be that grains are just a cheap source of calories that convert to glucose pretty quickly. So you would say, well, if you're trying to eat a low carb, low glucose diet, then don't even we won't we won't even worry about the 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 um, the proteins in grains. We'll just talk about the fact that they kind of convert to to sugar so quickly in your bloodstream that they probably aren't they're not real good nutrition. Um, you know, uh, the other side of that argument would be you you say, well, what, don't we need grains to feed the microbiome? No, we don't. There are a, a tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people on the carnivore diet right now who are experiencing their best bowel habits ever because of, because of eliminating grains and eliminating uh, vegetables. And you would ask yourself, well, what, how can that possibly be? Doesn't, does, don't we need to uh, use bran and fiber to scour, you know, the, the intestines and clean it out? And don't we need these, um, uh, these soluble fibers so that the uh, part of the microbiome, the bacteria living in your, in your colon, can create short-chain fatty acids to feed the lining of the, of the, 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 the cells lining the gut. And that is, a, uh, that is one uh, avenue that we could, we, we could pursue, but it's not a requirement. So the microbiome changes with the diet over time. So whatever microbiome you have today, if you change your diet um, significantly and, and, and kept to that changed diet, your microbiome would be, would be very noticeably different in, say, three months or four months or six months. So what we see is that um, fecal matter doesn't have to be like undigested food uh, and uh, remnants of bran and, and fiber and some amount of uh, bacterial turnover. Fecal matter, the reason we, we have fecal matter is generally to get rid of dead bacteria that have outlived themselves in this microbiome, you know, the 60 to 100 trillion bacteria that live in our gut. They, they don't live long. They live, uh, you know, a couple of hours, a couple of days at most. <clears throat> so, so fecal matter 
ought to largely be just this bacterial turnover uh, and not so much undigested food particles. You know, a lot of vegans would say, well, you know, uh, uh, good bowel habits mean uh, taking a dump after every meal. I'm like, what? I mean, that's that's the thought process that a lot of vegans have have uh, you know promoted over the years. Well, that's that's indicative of of horrible bowel habits and and it, you know uh, undigested food means you're not you're not even absorbing the micronutrients in the paltry amounts of food that you're taking in as a vegan. So so the idea that we need um, fiber that we need. Uh, grains in particular to produce or provide fiber as a substrate for the microbiome is is a misnomer. It's just it, you, yes, if you're a, if you're going to eat a lot of fiber, then your microbiome will adapt to that, will produce short chain fatty acids. But um, collagen, having having mentioned collagen, earlier, collagen is a great substrate for those bacteria to convert to um, butyrate to and to short chain fatty acids. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so we've heard of MCT doing that. I've never heard of collagen doing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that those bacteria can do. Look, there's there 3,000, 4,000 species of bacteria in your gut, and they're all, it's always changing. And, and, and they become specialists at, at certain types of things. So if you shift your diet dramatically from one uh, way of eating to another, the microbiome, which may be uh, caught off guard initially for a couple of days, which in some people causes, you know, gastric upset, diarrhea, um, you know, whatever you've, you've heard about uh, radical changes to a way of eating over time. If it's a healthful way of eating, uh, the microbiome adapts to that. Those bacteria that are good at, at extracting, um, you know, the, the, the MCT, the short chain fatty acids from, from the, um, from the, collagen or collagen peptides, they kind of take over and they do their thing and, and, and a new form of balance is arrived in. So um, you've got many YouTube videos on what your typical daily routine is as far as nutrition. You, should, you say you fast till about midday and eat proteins and vegetables, and then you have a good healthy dinner, which is ultimately proteins and vegetables again. I don't want to get into that. I'll link to that in the show notes. What I do want to get into is your supplement regime, if you do have one and what that approximately looks like. And if you place value on the kind of uh, most up-to-date, you know, longevity protocols like NMN and resveratrol and, you know, obviously fasting yeah. something consistently. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting too, because I, uh, I've been in the supplement business for 40 years. I make supplements. I was uh, putting resveratrol in products 35 years ago. Um, I was putting N-acetylcysteine in. I was putting uh, grapeseed extract, uh, green tea extract, uh, you know, ECG. Um, I was putting in um, phosphatidylserine. I've been a big fan of some of these things over the years. And yet, <laughs> uh, I'm now coming back to sort of what I would call the minimum effective dose of anything. And I, I feel like uh, a lot of the early RDAs for these vitamins and minerals were arrived at um, through, first of all, through uh, autopsies uh, and, and, uh, and, and looking at um, a cross-section of the average person in the 40s and then coming up with a range of uh, values that somehow represented 
the that that range didn't necessarily represent good health. It just represented what the average range was of people that looked otherwise healthy. So it was it was always sort of assumed that it was arrived at kind of in, in a weird way. Um, the uh, RDA for vitamin C, for instance, is you know DB uh, was sixty milligrams, and and yet there was a time when I was taking twenty five thousand grams uh, of uh, 25,000 grams, 25,000 oh, no, grams, but yeah, 25, 25 grams. Yeah. 25,000 grams. Uh, 25 grams a day of calcium ascorbate because Linus Pauling said that was a good idea. And the more vitamin C you had, the better it was for, for your immune system. Well, it was clearly a horrible idea. Uh, and, um, but you know, I was willing to take that on. Uh, I used to be, a f- so Resveratrol, you know, is a great example of something that was in the news 20 years ago. Uh, companies have, have been formed based just on extracting resveratrol and seeing it as the be all and the end all for, you know, telomere length and a number of other um, anti-aging properties. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not I'm not seeing it anymore. I think a lot of the early promise of these uh, esoteric supplements has kind of diminished and you're, and, and you're not really seeing the sorts of long-term benefits that, that by now, 20 years in or 30 years in, we might have seen uh, from that. And so to answer your question, I don't do much in the way of supplementation right now. I do collagen because I think collagen is a enough of a fourth macronutrient that I want to get 20 grams a day of it, for instance. Um, I had my 23andMe, you know, DNA test done. It turns out I'm not a very good converter uh, of vitamin D, so I supplement with vitamin D, um, and it shows up in my blood work, and it shows up in how easily I've handled COVID the two times I've had it, which is basically nothing. Um, and uh, and that's pretty much it. I don't really supplement anymore. I'm thinking that. Uh, Back to those early RDA investigations, they were also based on a, on a high amount of grain intake in the average human. And if you look at what grains can do, first of all, they raise blood sugar. Second of all, grains contain a lot of phytic acid, phytates, which bind with minerals. And so the mineral, the, the daily value for mineral might be, too, might be as high as it is simply based on the fact that we were chelating so many of these minerals out of our body with the diet that we we're taking in. Um, so if you get rid of some of these more offending uh, parts of the of the diet, in the, in, my, in this case grains, for example, maybe your uh, your your mineral requirements are much less because minerals tend to want to stay in the body. They don't want to they don't want to be excreted. So you don't need to take in fifteen hundred milligrams of calcium every day if you're a woman, unless you're unless you're leaching it out, unless you're excreting it out. So I've, I've, I've become much more um, interested in looking at the body as a closed loop. Like the body wants to, it wants to hang on to everything. It wants to hang on to its fat, unfortunately. doesn't want to let go of fat. Uh, wants to hang on to protein. Uh, and when we, uh, one of the things we talk about when we go keto and when we, when we intermittently fast, once you become keto adapted and fat adapted, um, and you then don't eat for two days, you would say, well, what happens? How could you, aren't you going to lose your muscle? Well, no, you won't because there's a great upregulation of protein sparing um, uh, systems within the body. And so 
Whereas you might have, when you were eating three times a day, deaminated and pissed out a lot of amino acids. Now you just, you retain them in this, in this amino acid sink that we have. So the body wants to hang on to that. It wants to hang on to the minerals. It does not want to really excrete them unless you're overly sweating and, uh, and drinking too much water, um, which is another uh, interesting uh, issue there. It wants to hang on to, to minerals. And I suspect it wants to hang on to vitamins as much as it can. So I like to look at, again, this minimum, what's the minimum effective dose? What's the minimum effective dose of exercise we need to do to be fit and strong and lean and healthy? And, you know, there's a bell curve with exercise. At zero exercise is horrible. And then you find a, a really optimal point, but then you, you do more and more and more and it tails off. Um, food. Um, I like to tell people, look, um, most of your life, you've kind of gone with this thought process, like what's the most amount of this meal I can eat and not feel like a glutton or not feel like shit afterwards? What's the most amount of food I can eat and not gain weight? What's the most amount of dessert that I can have and, and, and not be uncomfortable? And that's kind of how we're wired. So that's fine. But access, we have access to food 24-7. So that gets in the way. So my thought process is, What's the least amount of food I can eat and maintain muscle mass or build muscle mass, maintain energy, never get sick and not be hungry. So what's the least amount of food I can, I can do. And, and again, the hunger thing is important. So I'm not suggesting that you have to starve yourself. I'm saying part of the qualification is what's the least amount of food I can eat and accomplish all these tasks, including not be hungry. And you'll find that when you become metabolically flexible, when you learn how to burn fat and you learn how to, um, efficiently use ketones in the absence of glucose, you realize, Jesus, I don't need that much food, really. Certainly, I don't need it meal to meal and not even day to day. So maybe if I make it up over the, over a period of a week, you know, in other words, if I'm, if I'm shooting for 2,300 calories a day, I don't have to do 2,300 calories every day. I can do zero calories one day, zero the next, 4,000 on the third day. 1,800, and as long as at the end of the week, it sort of averaged out to 2,300, if that was my number, then, then everything stays the same, and my body knew exactly what to do in the presence of food and in the absence of food because I was metabolically flexible, and I knew how to access stored body fat and burn that in the absence of calories, and I knew how to raise body temperature in the presence of too many calories. Yeah. I think um, the conversation around people becoming uh, acquainted with their hunger signals and understanding their hunger signals is like a, a rabbit hole in and of itself. But I'd like to have you talk about, um, I know, so I'm going to guess, you brought up the magic word, you brought up the word ketones, I want to go down that path. I'm going to guess with the way you eat, um, you know, with fair degree of fasting, with protein and, and vegetables only, with protein and vegetables only primary for dinner, I'm going to guess you're just by default often in a ketogenic state. I'm guessing you don't intentionally measure, you can correct me if you do. And I'd just love to have you talk about the benefits you've received and whether or not you think it's, now it sounds like it is, a generally a good idea for most people. So I don't measure. Um, I'm, I'm the anti-quantified self. I, the only metric I use is how do I feel? And so if whatever I'm doing is making me feel good, whether it's how I choose to eat, when I eat, as long as I feel good, as long as I have energy, as long as I'm getting through my workouts, as long as I'm building muscle, as long as I'm having you know, um, having fun. Uh, I don't want to know how many, what my ketones are in millimolar or what my blood glucose is. Yeah, there was a time when I would have wanted to know 
in the event that I was on a path to, um, to, to ill health. I mean, that's what a CGM is for. Continuous glucose monitor is only good for about a week or two. And then you, you, you've gotten all the information you're going to get. Now you're either going to, you know, embody the information and, and what you know you need to do, or you're going to choose not to, in which case, why did you, why did you need it that in the first place? But at the end of the day, all that matters is how you feel, right? So when I talk about metabolic flexibility, one of the things I talk about is, um, I'm, I'm probably not generating a lot of ketones, but here's why. I, as, as somebody who's metabolically flexible, um, if I go uh, 18 or 20 hours without eating, my liver is producing ketones just at a nice, easy pace, just enough to feed my brain, which would, which would otherwise be expecting glucose, but uh, I've trained it not to expect glucose every two hours. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, ketogenic diets and ketosis. So the term ketosis, osis means uh, sort of connotes a pathology, right? Osis means too many ketones. There's too many ketones in the bloodstream. Now, we know that that's not a dangerous thing for people who are uh, not diabetic, for instance. Um, and so when you say, well, oh, you brag about how high the ketones are in your bloodstream. Well, that's, that's fine. You're making ketones, but you're not burning them efficiently. So your body is overproducing them and then you're pissing them out or you're sweating them out or you're breathing them out. So eventually when you become keto adapted, and by the way, uh, muscles that are well-trained and fat adapted don't even use ketones. They're just like, nah, we don't need ketones. You save that for the brain. The brain will use ketones. Um, and the brain basically has no wild swings in energy demands throughout the day. So the brain, like if you go to the gym and you do a, a heavy leg day, your legs are using 50 times, maybe 100 times the, the energy requirements for each of those reps that you're doing while you're doing them. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a payback over time and the, the buildup of lactic acid and a recycling of ATP and all the stuff that happens. But while you're doing that, the brain is just going along at a steady state. The brain is not having a wild energy swing at all. So if you know that you can, confu you can fuel the brain with just ketones, and you know that the brain on, a, on, an, on an average day you know, might, might use 500, 550 calories throughout the day, that's only 20 calories an hour. There's seven calories per a gram of ketones, that's three grams of ketones per hour. The liver's like, we got this, dude. This is nothing. And so the liver doesn't, isn't, isn't going frantically. Oh, Jesus. Oh, oh my God. What are we going to do? We got to crank out, you know, six millimolar here. We got to, we got to fix things. What happens is that those are short term, uh, adaptations, uh, that happen if you like start, um, starving yourself for two days at a time and you haven't been keto adapted, or if you're new to keto and you, and you're, again, your body hasn't really built the metabolic machinery to use the ketones efficiently. That's what happens. But people who have been keto for 10 years will tell you they don't even measure ketones because they're going to be 0.5. They're going to be 0.4. They're going to be barely, barely registering as it in ketosis because they're so adapted to the energy demands of their body. Whether or not they eat, it has nothing to do with what they eat or when they eat. They're just, their body is ready to make ketones, but not overly produce them. And it becomes a very efficient um, use of 
these energy substrates that are otherwise considered precious commodities by a body that, you know, 50,000 years ago could not afford to waste one single calorie doing something stupid. Mark, you are the creator of the Primal Blueprint. You created the company Primal Kitchen, which you later sold to Kraft. Yes. Yeah. And so you you made an allusion there to you're now removed from that company. The products are amazing, by the way. You did an incredible job with the product, with the company. You now completely exited the company. Well, I mean, I I sold to them, but I'm um, I'm the uh, face of the brand and I go do all the events and I, you know, I just had a a company wide uh, Zoom call today with 50 people on it. And so I'm I'm intimately involved in the R&D. And in sort of the the sales staff cheerleader, if you will, yeah, you've done an amazing the job. Fun, on the the fun stuff, yeah, yeah. The products are truly, truly great. I mean, I don't know if they've changed since being purchased by Kraft, but originally they were amazing. But you mentioned you have a new pro- new project that you're working on. I'd love to hear what that is. I can't tell you. Um, I, <laughs> I I sort of can, um, but I'm getting into a uh, into minimalist footwear, and oh. um, it's been a I've been a fan of that for a long time. So. Uh, we'll make some announcements in the next few months, but it's been very exciting for me. And, and That's uh, awesome. yeah, looking forward to there, that. There's two big companies that one that I wear and the other one's been trying to get me to, to steal me away and, and come <laughs> over there. But once yours comes out, I'd love to check them out. <laughs> I'll talk to you about it offline. Yeah, very cool. All right, man. Well, yeah. I look forward to it. Uh, Mark, yeah. There's so much we could talk to you about, but I'd love to have you just share where our audience can learn more from you, which book you recommend they pick up first and uh, yeah, where they can be in touch with you. Sure. Uh, so Mark's Daily Apple is my blog. Uh, great. great. Posted there every day since 2006. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of words. Um, and, uh, the, 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 my most recent book is Two Meals a Day, uh, which talks about intermittent fasting, much the way we discussed this, this concept of metabolic flexibility. But, but I think for a lot of people who are really interested in the science and the background and the concept of evolution and how humans evolved and you want to get a base baseline understanding of where I'm coming from, my original book, The Primal Blueprint, is still probably the best, the best read to understand how this works and why it works. How many books have you written? Is it 35? Uh, it's 12, but I've published 30. I've published 35 books, but um, I've written 12. Okay. Yeah, I read somewhere like 35 books. I'm like, That's a lot of books. <laughs> Even 12 is a lot of books. So, so no, 12 12. Almost too many, but <laughs> are you are yeah. you done with the book writing now? Or are you have to? No, I mean, I, I'm, but now I'm trying to get into some other um, more politically charged areas than than diet and exercise. So we'll see. We'll see what what my team lets me lets me do. We're not. Are we allowed to share, or are you going to keep that no, in your back, no, no, background? Uh, yeah, I'll keep that in the background. But I, I'm quite opinionated on on where we are in this world right now, and and how how closely we are to to um a ridiculous tipping point where nothing makes sense you know and i, I just i mean for instance the, the concept of the metaverse right now and you know how like we're going to live in the metaverse like we're going to like that's going to be a you know that's going to enrich our lives uh i'm not i'm not buying that so i'm going back to you know regenerative agriculture um you know building up an immune system as opposed to getting mass vaccinations i mean all, you know all of, it it all makes you know it would all make sense in the context of the things i've written about how we evolved as humans but we have to get back to letting mother nature do what mother nature does and yep. step aside and go okay 
you know, as long as I understand it, I'm going to play, I'm going to participate, but I can't try to fix it. I can't try to, you know, um, circumvent it. And, and that's, that's broadly where I am on that spectrum. Yeah. I just invested in a 6,000 uh, acre regenerative agriculture business and uh, same idea, right? And people have these ideas like, Hey, we're going to go do this. And it's going to be a, an epic failure and many people are going to die and they're going to yeah. deprive, but there'll, there'll be a population of people that exists outside of it that will continue to thrive. hundred percent, hundred percent. And you, you are, you are not to steal your thunder, but you're like the 10th person in our, in our arena that has talked to me about having invested in a, in a regenerative ag farm. So it feels like we're on our way. It feels like we're, we're getting some traction. Yeah. We just got to keep the kids uh, focused on the right things, not the wrong ones. It seems I've got a couple of young ones and they, they definitely are getting um, manipulated into yeah. going in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, it's like, it's like, you know, Hey kid, you want some candy? I mean, it's very enticing. Some of the things that they're being offered, but you gotta, you gotta step aside at some point. Yeah. I always, people, people say that, you know, I'm, I'm manipulated or I say I'm manipulating my kids and people go, that's, that's like child abuse. It's like, if I'm not doing it, somebody is, right? <laughs> Like you got to push them in the direction that you think is uh, in the best interest. 100%. Mark, thanks for your time, man. Absolutely amazing. Love what you do. Keep it up. And, Appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Back soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you very much for joining me on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I know you love this conversation with Mark Sisson. If you did, please be sure to share with at least one person you know and love who ultimately wants to look as great, feel as great, perform as well as Mark at 68 years old. I know I do have already share with my parents. I've already shared it with uh, some very important people in my life because I think that ultimately there's, there's a lot to be garnered, not just in the words coming out of his mouth but in the way that he approaches his life, the uh, level-headed demeanor, the calm focus, the, the what seeming absence of fluctuations, right? Mark seems to be very stable. He seems to be very healthy, very fit, very focused, and ultimately very productive. So thank you very much to Mark Sisson. Thank you very much to Primal Blueprint. And thank you one more time to our amazing sponsor for, for today's show, Ned High Quality CBD derived from hemp, which means it's in the absence of any psychoactive THC, uh, 100% organic, amazingly sourced, an incredible story behind the, the company as well, which I will share with you in due time. Uh, this is a company based out of Southwest Colorado um, and literally producing the best quality products that we've been able to find so far. So if you are someone who uses CBD, head over to helloned.com slash muscle and get hooked up with 15%. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, do so right now because we have some more amazing guests coming for you this month and every month going forward. This is Nutrition Month in the Muscle Intelligence community. If you're not already part of our Facebook community, go ahead and join that right now. If you're not already following me on Instagram, go ahead and do that right now. If you're not already subscribed on YouTube, we have amazing content coming on all of those channels and so much more here on the podcast. So ladies and gents, thank you very much for being here. Um, live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Ben Pukolsky out. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.